Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Scott Hancock, and I host From Queer to Eternity, a new podcast exploring what it means to be queer, where we have conversations like this. I look at younger generations and go, you can just Google this stuff. The fact that the only mention of queerness was don't get AIDS. <laughs> if I'd been marrying a girl, that would not have happened. Maybe we can find a, a universality that, that we weren't aware of before. That's why this podcast's so great, because actually, well, I guess we just don't think to speak of this stuff, and yet it's part of our fabric. From Queer to Eternity, available to listen to now from the Great Big Owl Company. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome to Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. For those who don't know me, I am a writer, performer and general radio and teleproduction board. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters and just generally shoot the breeze about this side of the genre, which I feel has been somewhat left out of the mainstream lately and yet is just as important and indeed integral to comedy. Without it... We wouldn't have classic comedy icons such as Monty Python, French and Saunders or Alan Partridge. So it's time to shine the spotlight on it once again and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for this inaugural episode is the writer-performer Tom Crowley. Hello, Alex. Hello, thank you for joining me on this uh, adventure. It is my adventurous pleasure to be here. We are, of course, recording this uh, in lockdown. Mm. So uh, it's very much a, it's a work in progress, but then we're quite used to that phrase in this, in this industry, aren't we? Oh, good God, yes. You have to book in, before you attempt a show, you have to book in a number of uh, very expensive venues so that you can <laughs> test your material in front of your uncaring friends and family to then <laughs> spend more money taking the show to the Edinburgh Fringe or similar uh, so that you can hope to have a career someday. That's how it works. And I think that segues us neatly into tell us about your sketch group <laughs> and the Edinburgh well, they're, Fringe. They're a, a pack of bastards and I haven't spoken to them since. <laughs> no, they're my oldest and dearest friends. Uh, I was in a group called Sad Faces. Once upon a time it was four Sad Faces. And then we had a few sort of members switched in and out. So we decided it would be good to have a, a kind of indefinite article of a group or in fact no no definite article whatsoever so we were just sad faces by the end we had another four, uh, the original lineup of sad faces and in fact this is a little bit a little known bit of trivia we used to be called life of crime life of crime was the first group name we ever had that appeared on sort of barely like nothing really we it appeared on the test material that we sent to the bbc years ago when we first started out for the witty and twisted competition and it was actually producer Victoria Lloyd. She said, I don't really like that name. So we thought of, at the time, you know, this was a sort of the dawn of the emoji. 
You know, this is, um, we're talking well, emoticons, in fact, at that time. Emojis, I think, were a glint in Apple's eye. Yeah. So we would occasionally, when giving disappointing news to each other, just say the phrase, sad face. <laughs> you know, and I think that's something that got around quite a lot. Like saying lol out loud. It was yes. a sort of thing at the time. It's, very, it's d- done ironically, isn't it? Yeah, it's ironic at first and then slowly it becomes something, you know, like you're at, one day you're at a funeral and you actually find yourself saying, oh, sorry about your uncle, sad face, you know. But anyway, the original lineup of Life of Crime and then Four Sad Faces was uh, me, Tom, Tom Crowley, mm-hmm. that is me. Yeah. Uh, Jack Bernhardt, uh, still writer. Toby Wilson, still writer, mm-hmm. and Rachel Lerman, our friend uh, from our school days, went to a different school, but was a friend of ours from our teenage years, and she is she has since then been a producer of opera, and then the producer of the Royal Opera House. Oh my god! And I believe now has a, an even more important job at the Southbank Centre. So, so she got out of comedy quite early, and I must say it worked out extremely well for her. Twenty twelve, we had Rosie Fletcher as the fourth sad face and after that she she didn't really want to go back to Edinburgh so we we did gigs there were there's only one gig I think where we did all five sad faces mm. but um but we we were sort of we kind of had the idea that we'd be an interchangeable kind of like swapping in swapping out group and well as, as often happens like uh, Rachel already had her own stuff to do Rosie had her own stuff to do so it was just us three lads for the last two shows I met you when you were doing previews for the Dawn Chorus. Yes, that was our last show. Last and best, I think. There was something quite sort of different and quite special about that show, wasn't it? As well as it being your swan song as a sketch group. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, man. I mean, it was it was a, a very high concept. It was so we we'd done we'd begun doing story driven shows that were still sketch shows, but we sort of had a narrative that was pushing the whole thing. Yes, uh, and that sort of began with a kind of a meta device that we used in our 2011 show, which was called Four Sad Faces Suddenly. Four Sad Faces, comma, Suddenly, which I still think is a good title. And um, that was written by by Jack, Jack Bernhardt, uh, now incredibly prolific and successful comedy writer. Mm-hmm. And he had the idea of doing a kind of a, a an It's a Wonderful Life device, like I Wish I'd Never Been Born. And then uh, the gag was that Toby says, I wish I'd never joined Sad Faces. And at the end of the show, he says that, and then I echo it or something. And essentially, we sort of break the reality of the show and have to kind of go back over the entire show as if one of us wasn't in the show anymore. (laughs) And it was was a nice idea. And then at the end, so it it kind of retconned the whole show in a a funny way. The next year, we did Sad Faces Remember It Differently, which I mentioned before, our one year with Rosie Fletcher, who is is now uh, an author and a children's author. She also runs a, a shop for sewing supplies. She's got a very... A broad and diverse career and that was like us doing Rashomon basically where we we went we'll tell the story of the same day from four different perspectives and we had all sorts of sort of incredibly unnecessarily elaborate conversations about like okay so when we're talking to each other about the day we've just had that's like in a kind of liminal nowhere space and in fact I think I remember Rosie Fletcher saying to us if I hear the words nowhere space again this rehearsal I will kill all of you because we were arguing <laughs> over the passage of time in a way that no no audience member would ever, ever notice or care about, but we really did. <laughs> and it had to work. So anyway, that was our first year. And that, that was great. And it went well and we had a really good time. And, and then we the next year we did um, Sad Faces Through a Party, I think because we wanted something that was also a narrative, but would maybe be less involved in terms of the continuity. And then the, and then the, so after that, we, we'd done the pleasants for the first and it turned out only time. And it, there is something that feels a bit official about being booked at the, at the Pleasance. We were at the in the attic in the Pleasance Courtyard in Edinburgh. 
and and it was nice it was like it wasn't maybe our best selling year ever but it, it certainly felt like a step up and it was it was really nice uh and so we sort of went away from that going good well we've we've sort of we've made it into that little club now we we probably better like make sure our next show is is good essentially because you know the all the wear and tear of doing previews and doing Edinburgh every yes. single year that does wear you down over time even if you know we had fun and we did you know it's a lot of work i always find it amazing how people have the stamina let alone another show in them year after year no exactly i think it's it's yeah it's quite amazing when people manage to do that but we we sort of didn't want to treat it you know like a sausage factory quite as much anymore i'm not just referring to the fact that we were just three guys i mean in terms of you know churning things out rather than the other kind of sausage factory (laughs) it's a sausage factory not a sausage party exactly sausage factory not a sausage party and we didn't want to be either really uh, so we we decided well we'll we'll take a bit of a break and just see if we can think of a, a good enough idea. We we sort of went well let's keep actively working on ideas and talking about how we can do this, but let's not go back to we've got a really good idea. And it was basically we thought of it just slightly too late to apply to Edinburgh 2014, so we we held it back until 2015. Partly because we we were tired of just racing to get a show done and not having any luxury of time to to really refine something. So we did take, we took a sort of year off, but during that whole year we were working on the Dawn Chorus. And the premise of the Dawn Chorus, which I still love to this day, was that we were, we were putting together a very weighty and worthy play based on a novel about World War One that would be a bit like Atonement or Birdsong or something. And I think it was Toby came up with the name The Dawn Chorus, which is just the most perfect, like hokey, is it sort of bittersweet novel about the First World War title. And so we had, so the idea was that we were, we were putting this, play based on the novel and the novel didn't exist it never existed and we never we never yielded that during the show we thought we'd made it clear enough by having sections where like me doing a voiceover as the novelist was recording you know wax cylinder audio diaries to his long-suffering wife about you know how he needed more shotgun shells and gin and stuff you know and stuff that (laughs) if it was about a real person you would be thrown in jail for like libel but like it but still people including i believe uh toby's father said is it a real book after the show and it's like no obviously not that's what i loved about it it went over people's heads because you had the poster that was uh the penguin penguin classic wasn't it (laughs) <laughs> yeah i was happy about that that was i i designed that but that was jack's idea was to have it look like and we after because like i mean I'll, I'll be totally upfront with you alex like it was i think it was a very good show we had a lot of people come and see it and tell us they loved it and i think a lot of people took from it what we wanted yeah but it was a rough old year like sales wise it was tough to get people through the door and like no press i mean things are even worse with the press in edinburgh now as i understand it but that year it really felt like is there nobody will nobody come and you know that's one of the few marks of you know concrete achievement you can have really is get some good reviews in and we just nobody came so anyway but like we, we did have a good time but it was it was we had all these sort of conversations about oh maybe it looks like too much like it is a real play and i'd say no guys look the yes the the flyer is a penguin classics edition mm. but it's also got me a man with a beard wearing a really like rubbish dress <laughs> clearly trying to play <laughs> You know the lead, the, the romantic <laughs> lead lady, and it's just like it's obviously a joke. But you know, I suppose it's it's hard to know when you're trying to do a kind of fake, uh, presenting something off as real. Do you think that's a harder like a harder sell than just it's a sketch show? Well, I suppose so. I think the difficulty is if you. I think what we were we always admired about other groups and stuff. What we wanted to do ourselves was kind of that. 
if you say it is a sketch show, and like I'll be honest, there are a bunch of shows that seem to be up every single year, with, and with no more unique branding than this is a sketch show. Mm. And they did great, and I really respected it because they just stuck to something. Like the one that really sticks with me is Foil Arms and Hog, oh, who are yeah. now doing better at doing like web videos. They were up every single year, and they'd have a sort of a punny title or something, but it was always just like a sketch show, and you, and they got people in the door. Like they just built a brand of being a dependably funny sketch group, and that was all they needed. And we didn't necessarily want to be gimmicky, but we did want to do something with like with narrative, and that clearly each show had its own distinct identity in that way. And and I don't know. I suppose it's that if you say because I think Four Limes and Hog have been going up so long and, and doing such good stuff that you go, oh, they're just dependable. They're known. If you go to Edinburgh, you've you've probably seen them. And if you like them, go next year because it'll be good again. Yes. And that's I think that's a good way to build up some trust and, and an audience. And for us, I think we just went well, we don't want to run the risk of being just another sketch group, you know, and might I add just another sketch group consisting of three white men. What we knew we wanted to do was to just um, to do something that was a bit more experimental in terms of the way the shows were framed and and sort of paved the way for doing just more narrative stuff in general. Like we all we all were writing, you know, sitcom pilots and plays and things. So we already had these desires and sort of um, those instincts in us uh, churning away. So I think we just wanted to put that into the, the sketch work, really. You've trodden the board of sketch character stand up improv. You you know you're quite you're you're able to turn your hand to to everything really. Well, thank you. I think that's I've thought about this a lot actually recently, and I, I was talking to yeah. talking to somebody about this recently, and I was saying that the sort of the journeyman uh, jack of all trades comedian was always to my mind the ideal when I was kind of growing up. And you look at people like the League of Gentlemen and to, to a lesser degree, maybe the Mighty Boosh and loads of people that I sort of admire and, and people who are still a bit like this, like uh, like Limmy is a bit like this, actually. I've just been watching the latest series of, uh, well, the first series of Limmy's Homemade Show. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's out and it's wonderful. It's so good. I've seen one of, we're, we're, we're rationing them here in lockdown, me and my fiance, we're we're uh, we've seen the first two of three, and we're going to watch the. Th- I, I want to save the third because it's there's so little of it. It's such precious, beautiful material. But but that kind of so looking at him, he started out as like a web designer and a, and a flash animator, and then sort of had a podcast that became the same sort of material he would then do on a little bit of on YouTube, and then he, he had his website with loads of little flash games and animations and things. And off the back of that, somehow he ends up doing his own sketch show on BBC Scotland, I guess, because he built a bit of an audience through the, the online stuff. You look at Limmy and he composes all of the, the music for his TV show. He's also clearly filming it all himself, setting up his own cameras. He runs like Twitch streams and things and, and also uh, you know, sort of makes everything. He edits, you know, he, he animates, he animates the effects in the show. Oh, wow. It's, it's totally a one man operation. And he's just, he's always been a bit of a polymath. But also sort of people like Peter Serafinowicz are a bit like this. People who can sort of be funny personalities. They're also brilliant, funny writers. Yes. And uh, and, and also actors, you know, and, and actually if you push them, they could probably go on stage and do sort of 10 minutes of stand-up. You know, it might not be their main thing, but they can, they're funny enough people and they can, they can, they understand the structure of a joke well yes. enough that they could do all of those jobs. And it always seems to me that, you know, the ideal comedian is someone who you can get in to write on your sketch show uh, but who might also write a sitcom, but 
but also if you got them to host an award ceremony they'd be able to do a good enough job of doing some stand-up for you and you know and it's sort of and also if you cast them in something they'd not only be funny but also be a good actor They've just got the comedy chops. That's it. Yeah, sort of like how I think Monty Python ended up, most of the members of Monty Python ended up being able to do that because it was a very different time and they had immense privilege in, in the sense that they were given a show immediately. You know, <laughs> and, and also I suppose people like Key and Peele are like this as well because they, they both write, they have done stand-up in front of Curtain stuff, they are fantastic character formers and now Jordan Peele's an award-winning filmmaker. You know, it is, I think Sketch naturally lends itself to producing those sorts of polymaths because you're used to having to do so much and so many jobs yourself. But I think there's just a few people like that who I've always thought, oh, that's brilliant, that's who I'm going to be. So I do think that since being a child, like wanting to sort of train myself up in that way, I'm sort of like uh, Batman, uh, Alex, in that I, you know, but instead of having my parents murdered when I was a child, I saw... You know, the naked gun two and a half on VHS. And <laughs> instead of training myself to be the ultimate scientist, detective, and kung fu fighter, I taught myself how to act and write and edit audio as well. So you need Hollywood to make that story. No, exactly. Well, I'm Christian Bale's on board. He's going to either gain or lose weight uh, for it to get some attention for the project. So it's all going to be great. So I suppose my next question for you mm. is yes. if you had to be isolated, that's right, it's a lockdown theme question. Right. If you had to be isolated with any TV comedy character, who would it be? Oh, that's interesting. This could stretch to sitcom as well. This could be... Not necessarily a sketch character. Yeah, okay. Well, it, that's very simple, I would say, then, in which case I would say Terry from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Ah. without question because he's he's in it always you know he loses his temper sometimes but he's a very nurturing caring person yes very sweet generally and he'll protect you and also yeah exactly he's a, a giant goliath man and if anyone sort of you know tried to i don't know break in or 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 bother you or or get within two meters of you he could probably crush their skulls with one of his enormous hands mm. so I would say Terry from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and, and those are my reasons. But yeah, I think he's also, he'd like a good laugh, but he's not sort of too, you know, eager socially. You know, you, you'd have your space from each other, but also, I suppose the only problem is he's got loads of children. So you'd have to, if you're living with him, you'd probably have to live with his, his wife and all of his children. But, you know, you could be an asset to him. You could help with his childcare. You could, or else you'd perhaps, it'd be the two of you isolated, so you just have to hear him talking about his kids quite a lot that's true yeah terry's a good one yeah i think so i think he's he's just one of those characters that's like just very nice that you get in sitcoms now and again he's just there to sort of be a bit of a steadying influence i like that you immediately thought of that yeah well we, we are watching the latest series on netflix at the moment so it was it was in the front of my mind but yeah yeah <laughs> What's your kind of view on the whole sketch uh, belongs online now and not on the telly? I think, well, in term, artistically, I think that's total garbage. I think it's a, a terrible, terrible direction. I think what, it's, what it is, is it's, it's born out of commissioners and producers' absolute cowardice and refusal to take a chance on anything. Yeah. Because, you know, with a sitcom, you can't really get the same impact. You know, a single camera sitcom that someone's made for no money and is releasing online, that takes a huge amount of man hours that a lot of people can't really afford and equipment that a lot of people can't afford. So you can't really 
say, oh, we knew this person was right for a sitcom because they managed to record a 10-minute pilot just with them and their mates in it. But what you can do is go, oh, we knew that this sketch group or this sketch writer or performer was worth hiring to write gags and sketches because they have a great Vine channel or a great TikTok channel. And I think, or they they became a sort of viral hit on Facebook video. And I think that's fine because, yeah, that's a great, I love the fact that that's a much more accessible way for people to get into things. Way more accessible to bring things back again way more accessible than being expected to go to the edinburgh fringe yeah and it's it's a huge leveler the online thing whereas anyone most everybody has a phone with a camera of some kind in it so you can record a little sketch and vine was brilliant for that tiktok is also like if you find the right people is also brilliant for that and i think there's a lot of that on on twitter and facebook as well like you've got people on uh, twitter like alistair green and uh, fergus craig yeah all of whom have been doing comedy for ages but have sort of found their niche there but I don't think it's the. I don't think it should be the aim of big production houses and commissioners to say we want to do the same as people with no time or money are doing. Yes. We want to. We want to re- record. Hey, we got a great commission. We're going to record five three-minute sketches. What are you going to do with them then? We're going to put them on social media. Okay, why? Well, because, you know, if they go viral, we'll consider possibly giving that person a program. Will it be a sketch program because they make sketches? Probably not. We'll probably try and turn one of their characters into a sitcom and then that won't work because that's not the terms that that character is supposed to exist in <laughs> and then we won't make that sitcom because it doesn't work. I mean, yeah. Like, that seems to be the kind of thinking of it. And I think that's sort of what most people's experiences are like. Like, occasionally you get something that breaks through. Like, the big example being Stathlet's Flats that I can think of. I was going to say, yes. Yeah, because that, yeah. that seemed to work. And I think that's because there's enough richness in that character and because uh, jamie dimitri is good enough at you know building as a writer and as a performer building a bigger world around that person so that works but the fact of the matter is if you want a sketch show you've got to make a sketch show and i think that one isolated i was thinking about this just this morning you've got me going now alex this is going to be a very rich and uh, and furious controversial pilot episode but i was thinking about this morning have you seen from the it's kevin the kevin eldon show they recreated the sex, the sex Pistols interview with Bill Bundy. Oh, with the Amish. Yeah, but they're all Amish. Yes, I remember that. And other than that, the entire sketch is played completely straight. It's just the interview with Bill Grundy. It's 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 a it's a word for word transcript, isn't it? It's a word for word exact recreation. It's just that the Sex Pistols are dressed as Amish farmers, and and it's so funny. But can you imagine doing that sketch? And it's Pete Serafinowicz being Bill Grundy. Yeah, doing a brilliant impression of Bill Grundy. Can you imagine doing that sketch out of context? <laughs> can you imagine releasing that sketch just on its own on Facebook? Nobody would know what was going on. But putting it in the, uh, in the sort of comforting framing of, well, this is a sketch show. You're going to see lots of isolated scenes. Gives you the permission to do beautiful, bizarre things like that that you could never do as a web sketch. You know, unless you were an independent creator that already had built up a huge amount of trust and a a massive following, you know, you could release that and people go, oh, I know who that person is and I know uh, what their tone is. You'd need to be at sort of adult swim level or college humour, wouldn't you? Yeah, and even even then, their sketches tend to be longer, like uh, Too Many Cooks. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Part of the joke of that is it goes on far too long. That's the start of that gag. But I think part of that is because they have to spend so long building up the here is the reality mm. of this world. Here's where we're starting. Because to allow it to go to such a weird place. And it is more like a short film than a sketch. Yes. Oh, you know? it really and is. I, I think there's so many brilliant sketches that if you, if you didn't see them in context, you'd, you, it, with an affection for the people involved, with a knowledge of the sort of tone that they set up and a context for that show, 
they just would not work. They wouldn't be so fondly remembered. Like you look at Four Candles, and that like is basically it's a sketch which is based on puns, and it's uh, it's the two Ronnies, and uh, that's sort of all there is to it. Like, and it's set in a hardware shop, and it's just a bunch of mishearings that are funny. Yeah, yeah. And you go, great, fine, that's fine. And it is it is slightly it's basically a sketch that's remembered for one joke. Which is a bit weird. Yes. But anyway, and it's not even the punchline joke. No, no, it's it's like the first joke of the sketch, and it's it's great, and it's a, it's a funny sketch. It's got loads of brilliant bits in it. But you go, I think that if you put that on its own on Facebook, people would go, well, it's just you know they click away within the first two seconds because they go, oh, what's this? It's just a sketch about a hardware store. You know, you don't have the same permission. Yeah. Same as the mastermind sketch. You know, that might get around, but unless it had a clickbait worthy heading on it, like oh my god, best mastermind contestant ever, then no one would give it the time of day. And also, if you didn't know who the two Ronnies were already, you might just sort of be a bit like, well, who are these guys? What? What's happening? Like, what? Well, and also, because that because of that whole thing that you have to establish what the joke is within the first three seconds because people scroll over. And it, yeah. I, often think about, I often think about that with classic sketches, what what mm. they would look like now if you were trying to, like, as you say, the kind of, you won't believe what happened when this guy bought this parrot yeah. or, you know, whatever. It's like. when, when, you, when you try to get a refund at the pet store, crying laughing emoji. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Yasmin Akram, letting all of you know that myself and my friend Philippa Dunn and I have released the second series of our podcast, We Heart Worry. Join us for hard-hitting discussions on flashing your neighbours accidentally, looking after a child's pet when they go away, and of course, that most universal of worries, a strong fear of chicken. That's We Heart Worry. Find us where you find good podcasts. I mean, with the kind of whole thing of online as well, with um, in terms of money, there are some people, some commissioners who kind of think, oh, if it's if you do it online, it means it's cheaper, or you don't need to worry about production values. But then you mm. look at you look at stuff on YouTube, like I don't know, epic rap battles of history, or even as you say, like too yeah. many cooks, and you can see money's been spent there. Yeah, they've made a film. Like they, yeah, <laughs> they've made a short film. It's, it's strange how it sort of goes. It's a shame. Like it's kind of like if you were to say to somebody, "Have you ever seen Big Train?" and they go, "Oh no," there's only a few sketches you could really show them just on their own. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, there's the spoon one. 
I always go back to that one as an amazing, perfect sketch. It's very, very quick. That I mean, that's even just talking about that, that's another thing. Like, you can't just put that out in isolation mm. unless you already know Big Train. I mean, no. you can and go, oh, that's funny and weird. But part of the joy of the Spoon sketch is it comes partway through an episode where you've sort of had it established that most of these sketches are going to veer between the sort of three and five minute mark. Yes. You know, maybe, maybe you know, two to, two to five minutes. And that one's like 30 seconds and the punchline yeah. just hits you in the face out of nowhere. And that's why it's so funny. <laughs> but if you're, if you're looking at it out of context on YouTube and you can see that it's a 30 second video, you go, oh, that's a short sketch. So that's a, your first thought. The, the sketch will be called Spoons. And you go, okay, the sketch is about spoons. Then you'll see that it's 30 seconds long and go, oh, it's only 30 seconds long. Then you'll watch it and then it'll be quite funny, but you already know that it's going to be about spoons and you already know that it's short. You've got preconceptions, yeah. Which are two of the funniest things about that sketch. <laughs> <laughs> well that's it i mean when we i'm sure as same as me when you saw it it was probably on the dvd wasn't it yeah yeah amazing yeah. yeah i mean just getting that dvd and then binging through those was just some of the most profound comedy joy of my life well right from the off with the do you speak english no i don't that's uh, just it's, they're perfect it's, it's such good yeah sketches. when you're talking about people who do everything kind of themselves you know like limmy yes you have got your own little creation that is very much you, <laughs> one man band. It's got, yeah. it's got, it's got your your fingerprints all over it. It has, yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, I do a a solo sketch comedy podcast called Crowley Time with me, Tom Crowley. That's a project where I just, I mean, I, I write all of it. I play every part in it. Uh, I compose all the music sort of cack-handedly in GarageBand. And that's something I started doing, I think, just because, I mean, I forget what really got me going with it. I think Limmy's homemade show did inspire me, but I've always found it sort of more of a natural fit for me working in audio. I mean, firstly, it's it's easier and cheaper. But secondly, it's uh, I, I, having done, because I'm in other podcasts as well. I'm in a, one called Wooden Overcoats, which is a sitcom I mean, one called Victoriosity, which is is a drama with a sort of mystery thriller angle set in an alternate past uh, England. And you're a regular on the Beef and Dairy network. Yes, yes, Beef and Dairy as well. Yeah, yeah. So far, I mean, I I am in that quite a lot. I, I always just think of it as as Ben's thing that I'm allowed to be Ben Partridge's thing that I'm allowed to be in now and again. Mm. But I am I am in quite a lot of it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can hear plenty of me in that. And that that's that was a point of huge point of inspiration as well. Actually, thank you for saying that because because seeing Ben. Ben Partridge is brilliant and he writes lots of very kind of uh, accessible and totally sort of family appropriate comedy uh, in things like uh, he, he'd gone through all of the kind of radio for the contract writer position where you're just writing sketches for every topical show. Uh, and he's also done like loads and loads of sitcoms and various bits of script editing and things. So he's he's done the kind of um, he's plowed a sort of mainstream furrow in his career as well but he's also got like clearly an incredibly warped depraved and very funny imagination <laughs> which which often you know i can imagine i can't imagine him taking beef and dairy to radio 4 straight off the bat and then making it but what is amusing is he went away and made it by himself and then it became so successful having you know been recommended by uh, various sort of uh, people of influence and signing up with the maximum fun network based in the states it then became popular enough that the radio 4 bought it from him to retransmit the way the way he just kind of started this i remember he was starting beef and dairy around the same time as we were starting wooden overcoats and i think he he was looking for any sort of route by which to co-promote co those things yes and um 
so we, we chatted a bit and I was doing a little zine small press paper at the time which he put an advert in uh, for beef and dairy and um, uh, and just we sort of started talking and, and I was in quite an early episode he got me in as a guest voice uh, I think having heard Overcoats I don't know how he sort of became probably aware of me but anyway so but I was so impressed by the fact that he has you know he's got a huge listenership now and this is an old a really old saw this but like in terms of digital content and in terms of self-publishing and and um, podcasts and YouTube like you can do your own thing which sounds so obvious and played out as a thing to say but you realize that when what you want to do is bizarre sort of body horror comedy about beef you know that is hard to do anywhere else and most people quite rightly would probably go I don't see how that's funny and then you know even if you gave them a pilot they might not be of the right temperament or sense of humor to appreciate it well it's a weirdly niche thing isn't it but he manages to make it a much broader bigger thing mm. which is is really amazing like the the world of it builds and the um and the kind of the the, the areas he he permits the show to cover grow and change and and there's something about that that i massively admire and that probably was going into it as well when i decided to just do my own thing and i also think it's partly because I love sketches. I love doing sort of radio acting, funny voices, and sketch acting in general, like character acting. And there's just not that many opportunities to do that anywhere else. And you kind of have to do your own thing. And you can do your own live show. And, and at the same time, I was sort of developing plans for my first live hour. And yeah, yeah. the kind of outcome of all that was that I, I enjoyed the challenge of putting together the live sort of stand-up slash you know, character comedy sort of hour. But I was prouder of Crowley Time. I enjoyed doing Crowley Time more and more people had heard Crowley Time by that point than had seen the live show and probably ever would see the live show. It's interesting. So I thought, well, all signs are pointing to me prioritising this, uh, especially because it will go on the internet and then never go away again until, you know, the heat death of the universe and all the servers get wiped by the sun exploding or something, you know, and it's, it's just nice to know it's out there. Stop! Stop! All of you! You mustn't hurt him! He may look frightening, but he's innocent. He knows not what he does. He's like a child. Yes, he broke Artie Holtzman's arm, but only because he was trying to pull him out of the path of that carriage. And yes, he may have also crushed Frau Wendling's daughter, but only because he doesn't know his own strength. And yes, he might have cut in front of the line in the supermarket, pretending he didn't know that it's the same queue for the cashier as the self-checkout, but he doesn't know what he's doing. He's like a child, I tell you. I think another thing for me was that it's it's almost like, you know, I, I am a, a professional actor and writer and, you know, you're constantly trying to stand out from the crowd and, you know, what, what better personal uh, CV to have, basically, than me playing every part and writing every word of a comedy sketch show. And also a comedy sketch show that's just all about me is something I probably would never have in, in broadcast media. Oh, you know, not to be... Not to be um, and not to do myself down either, but like, you know, I can conceive of a universe where I've got my own radio sitcom, possibly. I can imagine even a, you know, a movie or a TV thing that I've written, but, you know, just the, the sort of, at least where I'm at my career now, unless I take a sudden massive upswing in fame, I'm probably not going to get my own sketch show that's just about myself commissioned. I mean, especially given the fact that the only person I can think of who's had that happen for them in Britain in recent memory is Tracy Ullman you know at one point the highest paid tv star in america <laughs> like that well that's it she she's a there, there was a there wasn't too much of a of a risk to take there 
No, there wasn't was, a massive risk. Was there really? There, no, no. I think that the issue is basically that it's a lot of time for, for what is now not, you know, at this point, still not very much money. I mean, I've got a Patreon running for the show and um, it's it's lovely and, and it's it's getting up to a sort of level of pledges per episode now where I go, it is mad that that many people are prepared to pay me to make this. It's hugely flattering. Like, it's nowhere near the point where I could possibly consider it to be a, a full-time job or even a part-time job. But it's certainly better than what I was making from making the show in the first place, which was nothing. And if anything, I was just spending an immensely indulgent amount of time on it. But now I go, oh, well, actually, people like it enough and care enough that it gets made enough that they're um, care enough that it gets made enough. Yeah, that's what I said, Alex. I'm sticking by it. (laughs) That it gets made enough that they'll put actual cash of their own into something which is given them for free anyway. Enough. Yeah, quite. Uh, (laughs) Enough, enough, enough. That's the thing. It kind of gives you that incentive, doesn't it? Well, also just that sense that people are actually listening and care. Like, I mean, as as the listeners may not know, but I think anyone in the business listening will know, is that we spend, like, I would say roughly 90% of our time either writing stuff that we won't ever be paid for or going to auditions that we will definitely not get. Like, it's it's such a, it's a, it's a numbers game so much of the time. And I think a lot of the game often is, a huge amount of it is luck. You also do need talent and commitment and motivation and work ethic you need all those things but luck is a massive part of it oh, gotcha. and also so is just graft just like producing scripts you know i mean I'd, I'd love to see a book published one day of one year's worth of unread or unproduced sitcom pilots you know from every <laughs> right you know working writer in britain i mean that'd be great wouldn't it be good what a great anthology you could just have like a, a massive thick like phone book of every pilot script written by that was even even if you wanted to whittle it down every one that was uh, taken seriously or uh, asked for by a production company like there'd be millions and i think that the thing with that is uh, for me i i really in- i think i'm quite rare among writers in that i really enjoy writing i love the act of writing i really yes. enjoy it and like when you listen to so many people talk about being writers you think it's like the worst torture for them but i, I really enjoy it i like making things up the tortured artists they yeah. they enjoy the having written rather than the writing precisely and i think that that's genuinely just how some people feel but maybe i'm just extremely lucky and i enjoy writing but um but so and also I, I love the sort of sense of like crafting something like that i also think everything you do even if it doesn't go anywhere improves your ability to you know you're putting in your 10,000 hours malcolm gladwell's 10,000 hours or whatever it is into um making yourself an expert at doing something enter hillary larson 23 years old from lakeside missouri Ms. Larson had arrived home that same morning after a coffee appointment with a girlfriend to discover her own father firing a shotgun repeatedly at a tree in their backyard and calling it a son of a bitch. When she questioned her father's behavior, he simply replied that the men who live in his hair had told him that the tree was reaching its roots under the house and was poisoning their water tank. Ms. Larson found this explanation incredible, not least because she knew their water tank was in the attic. But the trouble is that you do, you know, if I were just writing scripts to send off to people and and was, you know, getting none of them made, as seems to be the norm for most people, I, I think it would just be a bit sad Like after a while. You just start to go, well, nothing's getting made. And I mean, certainly Wooden Overcoats, the, the sitcom podcast, which kind of began my involvement with podcasts latterly. Um, that was born out of the fact that we were just all a bunch of, of writers for, for theatre and radio and, and screen and, we just, we're sort of, and actors in the same fields uh, who liked comedy and we're just sort of tired that nothing actually got going and we made something which has been a huge deal for, for all, all of us involved and, and that was just born out of us going, well, let's just do it ourselves, you know, and it was, you know, and some people think that Overcoats was pitched first to radio. It never was. We, we decided to do it as a podcast straight out of the gate. 
and um, because we just wanted it to definitely be made and, and get sent out there and, and for people to find it. Yeah, I think. The, but the thing is, you um, you can hear the team effort and that you are doing it for the love of it. Like you can you could really hear that in the show. Well, I'm glad. I mean, and it's true. And right and rightfully, it's got a huge following that has just got bigger and bigger yeah yeah it, it has and that's really really fortunate i mean it's been a long gap between seasons and now we're because of um uh, covid19 we're having to delay season four you know not indefinitely but certainly for a little while now our, our fourth and final series i know i've still got my episode to finish yeah well oh well you better hurry up i uh, know because i can't think of a good reason why you should hurry up but you know, still, <laughs> ooh, get that done get that done so we can't record it but, you know, we are going to get back to that as soon as it's humanly possible. The part that I find the hardest with wooden overcoats is writing Belinda Lang's narration. That is genuinely surprisingly difficult. It's like, really if, difficult. If anyone doesn't know wooden overcoats, it's narrated by a mouse. And I genuinely find myself sitting there for half an hour at a time just trying to figure out, you know, what, what this mouse is going to say to introduce us to the story this week. And I, it stops me starting, which is terrible. It does. And, like, I, <laughs> I rarely ever write anything out of order. It's time for our final section of the podcast, and it is one that will continue throughout the podcast mm. to keep a continuity, a bit like chain reaction, mm-hmm. but I can't call it chain reaction. No, so for legal reasons. At the moment, at the moment, it's it's called change of character. Ah, oh, I like that because that's uh, in keeping with the theme of the title of this program, Alex. Well done. Exactly. I see what you've done. That's good. So the way this works for listeners and yourself and indeed myself, because this is the first time I've said any of this out loud. Good. <laughs> Basically, I am going to give you the name of a character, mm-hmm. just the name, mm-hmm. and I would like you to unpack who you think that character is is hit me sort of what their what you what you imagine their occupation is maybe their hopes and dreams yes once you have done that you are then going to give me the name of a character that you have come up with yep for my next for my guest on the next episode Mm -hmm. to unpack and do exactly as you're doing and then so on and so forth great so to kick things off i'm very excited about both aspects of this segment thank you very much i hope it works i hope it works me too um so your the name I am going to give you mm. is an old is an old character of mine actually I won't tell you what he was but mm-hmm. uh, the name is Terry Fledgling. Terry Fledgling. Terry Fledgling. Who who is Terry Fledgling? Who is Terry Fledgling? Terry Fledgling. Now he he sort of Terry to me suggests quite a sort of a blue collar British type of personality. I would say mm-hmm. that's what that says to me. Terry Fledgling. Now Fledgling that speaks to me of the countryside of of birds and and the natural world. So I'm going to say that Terry Fledgling is a factory owner in the north of England uh, in strike era 1980s Britain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to, I'm picturing sort of a huge cigar, Terry Fledgling. He runs Fledgling Chattering Teeth, which is a mass production outfit for those wind up chattering teeth that are made. Oh, yeah. And Terry Fledgling, massive mutton chops. And this is, you know, maybe one of he's in a smaller northern town, but it's it's you know industrial town. But this is the biggest thing that they produce is those wind up chattering teeth, and they also have a sideline in making those things that you throw at the wall, and they kind of walk down the wall. Do you know what I mean? 
those sort of sucker footed things yeah oh god yes i guess uh, i remember that. that's like the dirty secret of the factory the main thing is the chattering teeth so it's almost like a sophisticated joke shop yeah like a massive but no they're, they're the supplier you see they're the the factory manufacturing thing ah, okay, yeah. all of the joke yeah. shops so he's the sort of chattering teeth king of of the north of england uh terry fledgling and uh he is um and amusingly he has next to no sense of humor oh, for someone who it. runs yes. the Shattering Teeth Factory. He's, he inherited the business from his dad. His dad was quite a nice person. He, but this Terry Fledgling grew up uh, spoiled and grandfathered into a job he didn't deserve. So he is... So he's begrudgingly taking over the family business. That's it. And he's, he's throwing his weight around a lot. He's got endless sort of problems with, with uh, drugs and mistresses and alcohol. Uh, he's mm. constantly embezzling money from the Chattering Teeth Company, constantly at war with the workers' union from within. And uh, yeah, and he's, he's really just all about the, sort of the, the cash. He's all about get me the money. I'm trying to think of other ways in which he could be a funny character. But I think he's 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 I think that what's funny about him about Terry Fledgling is that he's he he's grandfathered into all this. He's completely ignorant. He doesn't really know what he's doing. But he he kind of he's he makes up for all that with with extreme anger. And he can only actually function as the person running this factory with the help of his uh, secretary, um who I'm going to call Antonia Winterwood and she Antonia Winterwood is secretly the brains of the operation his mm. long suffering uh, assistant but he she has power over him right. because she knows that he has feet of clay like he has no idea what he's doing and he needs her to keep the wheels you know turning on this thing so that's that's the dynamic what do you think he longs for what do you think he wants to be doing I think he is I think he just wants more more power and I think what would make him happy would be just sort of sitting on a tropical beach making money by, you know, fishing and and selling his catches. But he doesn't, he'll never know that. He'll never know that that's what he needs because he'll be too locked up in, you know, trying to appear successful, trying to appear bullish and and strong and a tough leader. And I think that actually what he wants is sort of to be just lying somewhere with no concerns in the world. Mm. Uh, And actually what he'll do is is keep... um, taking pills and getting pissed in in various kind of unreputable night spots and uh, sleeping with strangers uh, until he dies of a heart attack at the age of 68, leaving his entire worldly wealth to his poodle, uh, after which point the factory that manufactures the chattering teeth will fold completely, putting all of its employees out of work, uh, including his secretary to whom he owed everything basically oh, God. and uh, what she'll end up doing is well it's it's sad at first but then in the spin-off she ends up uh, running <laughs> an extremely successful detective agency which actually is what she wanted to do all the time so we've already got a spin-off that's right winter winter Win- antonia winterwood is the name it's just going to be called winterwood isn't it winterwood is a really good name for det- i should have led with that no it's good i like i like you've got your own little chain going on there that's it i think i think i think terry flesh would miss would misuse a lot of long words and sort of powerful sounding words like he'd say like like paradigm he'd have to say come on guys we haven't got time for the paradigm and like shout that at people in the factory and they they wouldn't know what he was talking about yeah yeah he, he, he wants to feel he wants to feel clever and important that's it but he's got nothing he's got absolutely nothing yeah how old do we reckon terry is at the time we know him i think when he's first hired uh, antonia winterwood and she's sorting things out from mm. i reckon he's probably pushing 50 so i'd say that she's working for him for a yeah, good 18 years from you know girl and woman until she eventually breaks free after he destroys the entire factory 
Uh, I'm also going to say that she knows where he hides like little stacks of cash around his office that aren't accounted for. So she'll pinch them before the factory goes under. And that's how she'll get the seed money to start her detective agency. There you go. That's what that's the direct inheritance there. Oh, she yeah, she's the eyes and ears of the of the operation. Precisely. So that's that's my pitch to you for Terry Fledgling. That's wonderful. Can we now hear what your vision of Terry Fledgling was? Yeah. Oh, God, not even remotely as <laughs> thought out and elaborate as that. Was I close? <laughs> Bloody hell. Um, it's going to make my character seem so two-dimensional by comparison. Hey, hit me. Hit me. Um, so Terry Fledgling was the, um, the lead guitarist and singer in power metal band Satan's Weeds. <laughs> Basically, they'd have, you know, with sort of power metal, it'd be this sort of epic, hopeful, sort of like, you know, sort of dragons and... Uh, oh, high and fantasy, yeah, yeah. Like very, it, very yeah. high concept fantasy. But when, yeah. he, but when he wasn't doing that, he'd be speaking in this sort of, oh, hello, it's me, Terry Fledgling, <laughs> from Satan's Weeds. From Satan's and Weeds. It's, yeah, bit sort of Alan Benetti. I've just come from seeing me nan. <laughs> yeah, I get I, I can. I'm with you. I can see who he is. Oh, they, they, lo- they loved it when we started playing Children of Carpathia. <laughs> they loved that, you know. It's, and... Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you very much for playing my change of character. Can you please change, cha- change of character? Change, ca- yep. change of character. Can you tell me now for our next guest the name of your character? It's my great, great pleasure to tell you that the name of a character that I have come up with to challenge the next episode's guest with is Fiona Cockerell. Fiona Cockerell. Fiona Cockerell. Who is Fiona Cockerell? Who is Fiona Cockerell? We shall find out in the next episode of Out of Character. In the meantime, thank you so much for being my guest for this first episode, Tom Crowley. It's my extreme pleasure. My extreme pleasure. subscribe to our podcast you know it's all about how to get the most out of your partner and we're partners so we know all about it it's good get it wherever you want to get it when you go and get it from your podcast place richard and greta you know you know Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.